Well, there's been an election and we've got a new government or we're getting one. Yep, sure thing. So we'll be talking a bit about what that means to the housing market. And what else have we got on the agenda, Sue? Um, well, you took part in a webinar the other day, I think, I didn't did. you? With the lawyer, strata lawyer, David Bannerman. Yep. And you said a couple of really interesting things came up there. Yep. And I think you also had a, a really interesting query on the Flat Chat Forum from oh, a yeah. first-time strata owner. Yeah, somebody who's got themselves on the committee and immediately started raising the alarm about things that they thought should have been done and hadn't been done. It's a lot to talk about. I'm Jimmy Thompson. I write the Flat Chat column for the Australian Financial Review. And I'm Sue Williams, and I write about property for Domain. And this is the Flat Chat Wrap. So we now have, it looks like, a government with a majority of Labour Party, but crossbenchers. Mm, playing a big role as well. Yeah. And I mean, the Greens were talking about building millions of houses or apartments. I don't remember the Teal Independents saying much about housing. They were really very much focused on the environment and integrity. Mm, that's right. So uh, we're back to what the Labour Party was proposing, which was that they would be co-owners of houses and flats mm. for first-time buyers. And it's interesting because I think the Liberals staked a lot on their plan about housing affordability, on um, using uh, allowing people to use more of their super. And it seemed really as if that was quite a popular notion. Mm. But then maybe a lot of the negatives about the Liberals outweighed yeah. That positive. Yeah. But, I mean, lots of people were saying, well, you shouldn't be using your super. You should be keeping it for when you're older. Yeah. Um, and other people were saying, well, it's a great idea because an investment in super doesn't pay as much as an investment in property. That's true. So, in some ways, you know, th- there were there were lots of things in favour of that, but maybe it just wasn't quite popular enough. Mm. Uh, look. You know, it was all politics, really. I don't think the scare campaign about, you know, having Jim Chalmers sitting at the end of your kitchen table as a co-owner of your apartment or house really flew with many no, people. Because he seems quite a nice man, doesn't he, really? Yeah, he does. I wouldn't mind him. He can come around to breakfast with us anytime. Yeah. Um, one of the things that struck me during the election campaign was Waleed Ali wrote a piece about how the government, while it may want more people to be able to afford to buy houses, it doesn't want the value of property to drop because it's got so many people have invested in this idea Mm. that, you know, with negative gearing and stuff like that, that property is a good investment. Mm. It strikes me, I'm, I'm going to take a wild punt here and say the government might look again at getting rid of negative gearing. Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, it's making us baby boomers quite rich, mm. but it's making our kids yeah. impoverished, well, really, they, they because they just can't afford to get into the property market. Be- because every time they go to bid for an apartment or a house, there's somebody there who's looking at a second or third investment property. Yeah, and investors are really back in the market now in a big way. Yeah, and as somebody, I think it was an American economist, thought that negative gearing was ridiculous because it rewards you for making bad decisions. Mm. You know, if you pay too much for your apartment or your house, that's okay. 
because you can write that off against mm. tax. Mm. Yep, that's right. So it is the, you know, the elephant in the room. It's the fly in the ointment. It's it's a number of cliches. Um, <laughs> that's right. And I think you know it, it does make sense to scale back negative gearing. Yeah. But it was a it would have been a really dangerous election policy for anybody well, any of the parties to have made because as Bill Shorten proved right. it shows three years ago it, you can lose elections on that kind of thing. Yeah, but you know they should take the lead from John Howard. You know, all those years ago, he promised that there would be no GST. Because I think when you look at the alternatives, the alternatives are really strong wages growth Mm. to allow young people to be able to afford those kind of prices for Mm. property, given what you said, that they don't want prices to fall. Strong wages growth, well, that would be kind of nice, but Mm. you don't want wages growth to be too strong, really, because that's obviously incredibly inflationary. Mm. But the situation at the moment is that, you know, baby boomers have made a lot of money and young people are now really dependent on the generosity of their parents, aren't they, really? Yeah. You know, their parents helping them out yeah. with some of that wealth they've accrued. Yeah. Um, to, to Which allow, obviously doesn't apply them. to everyone, does no, it? I mean, if no. you if you are a young person who is doing all right, you might have a, a university debt mm. to, you know, once you start working, you've got money to pay back. And then uh, your parents, if you're like our new prime minister, a single mother on a disability pension mm. living in a housing commission where she's still around, she wouldn't be able to say, oh, here's a, a pile of money to get you started on, on the house. Sure, or parents even that feel that kids should make their own way and they don't really want to help them out because that's a cop-out. They yeah. want their kids to look yeah. after themselves and be independent and learn the value of that. Yeah, so, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why. But, you know, the the, the basic thing is... Negative gearing was a great thing when it came in because it encouraged people to invest in housing and that accelerated the number of houses being built and that accelerated the growth, the population growth and all these things. But we're past that now. Mm. You know, it's it's like it, we're, we're still have legislation that um, forces people to use steam engines on railways. <laughs> You know, which was fine once upon a time, but isn't so great now. Because mm. the real issue is, is always the supply of of homes, isn't it? Mm. Really? And when we're talking about that, we're talking about apartments. Mm. I mean, we're talking about high density or median density projects in, yeah. in lots of areas around Sydney and around Melbourne. And that's the only really long-term answer. I mean, Labour's idea of kind of joint ownership of homes is great, mm. and it's kind of a nice temporary short-term measure. But really, we've got to be looking at the long-term supply. Yeah. And that means making sure that development happens in a considered and responsible and respectable way, bearing in mind the neighbours of these new developments. But, you know, if they if they are good new developments and they really – um, look after a suburb and look after their neighbours, then this can only be a good thing. Mm. I just wonder if the co-ownership thing is going to be inflationary also. And if they do get rid of, or they, they talk about grandfathering um, negative gearing, so that it would, if you've got negative gearing on an apartment at the moment or a house, then it would stay but as soon as it was sold, then it, it would... Revert back. Yeah. Mm. And I wonder if that would prevent a lot of uh, development of apartments and houses. Mm. 
Because it would take a lot of investors out of the new property market. Well, certainly. Cons- well, that's the idea, though, isn't mm. it? To stop these this sort of rampant inflation. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, we kind of have to look at those solutions because construction is really slowing down now because, you know, we've all heard about the, the prices of raw materials going mm. up by at least 30% mm. and the disruption to the supply chain of building materials. So in that kind of um, atmosphere, we have to look at all options to yep. see what we can possibly do because, you know, there are difficulties in, in all areas. I reckon if you want to put a break on house prices, you get rid of negative gearing. If you want to put a break on rents, get rid of Airbnb, and then we can all move forward on a level playing field. <laughs> but at the same time, with, with long-term plans to increase the housing supply? Yeah, and get into more things like affordable housing in mm. a mixture of affordable housing within ordinary um, apartment, buildings. apartment buildings. Yep, so everybody's mixed in. Yep. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens when you are the new kid in an apartment block and you've never been in Strata before. That's after this. A very familiar story in a post to the Flat Chat Forum this week. Somebody has bought into, it's their first homeowner, and they've bought into uh, an apartment block, so it's the first time they've been an owner in apartments. And they've done all the right things. They've got themselves on the committee and doing their due diligence have started finding things that they think are a bit odd, like expensive sheets that are missing and receipts for work done that don't turn up and fire safety checks and things like this. And they've got to the point where somebody else on the committee has told them, just stop, just stop all this, stop asking questions, <laughs> which is not mm. a reasonable response, really. But, mm. well, what do you do when you're a new person in an apartment block and the committee has been trundling along quite happily without your assistance, but you suspect that things are not being done to the letter of the law? Mm. And that's probably a situation of a lot of people finding themselves at the moment because a lot of downsizers moving into apartment buildings for the same for the first time or first home buyers buying apartments for the first time as well. So many of those people won't be familiar with the joys and disasters of strata. <laughs> so um there'll there'll be newbies looking kind of wide eyed at what goes on. And especially I suppose in lots of established blocks where there may be older owners who've been used to doing things in a certain way and, and maybe, you know, haven't been keeping paper, good, correct paperwork and things, just mm. been kind of letting things tick along. So would you have any advice for that person? Well, I, oh, yeah, I, I did, actually. And, and uh, once I started writing it down on the forum, I realised there's quite a lot of advice <laughs> that mm. I wanted to give. One of them being that there are no stratocops going around checking up on everybody doing exactly the right thing. And that if you're doing the wrong thing, what tends to happen is that uh, another owner will raise a complaint and then that has to go through a process. You know, the, the mediation at fair trading, the tribunal, and the tribunal can even issue orders. So it's at the end of a very long process and uh, there are several stages at which the owner's corporation can decide we'd better do the right thing here long before you get to being fined, which is what they were worried about. Mm. 
I think there's also a situation in a lot of buildings. I mean, my theory is that there is no strata scheme in the whole of Australia that is 100% compliant with every aspect of strata law. There's little things that, you know, and most of them are minor and many of them are insignificant. Mm-hmm. And people get by. But one of the points I made was you go into an established building with an established committee and you start asking questions. Why are we doing this? Why are we not doing that? And the simple answer is a lot of people don't know. Mm. I mean, the the most common response is because we've always done it that way. (laughs) And you get people who aren't even aware. You get strata managers who weren't even aware that the laws had changed. And you cannot expect everybody in strata to know exactly what they should and should not be doing. So... When you see something wrong, should you actually just close your eyes and move on by? My suggestion was pick a battle, pick your your issues one by one. Don't go in all guns blazing saying everything is wrong here, we need to fix it. And then when you, you find an area of concern, do some research. And I've suggested joining the Owners Corporation Network or even just writing to Flatchat and saying, I'm worried about fire safety checks, I'm worried about... Uh, leaking balconies or whatever. You know, I'm worried about the uneven tiling in our foyer. Who's responsible? What can we do? What should we do? I mean, this person has realized that there's no maintenance fund in this building Mm. and there's no maintenance plan. Now, that is pretty typical, actually. A lot of owners have no interest in doing anything that will ultimately mean they'll have to pay higher levies. So it's not unusual to find that there's no sinking fund and no maintenance plan. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be one. There should Mm. be. There certainly should be a maintenance plan. That's in the law. You've got to have that. You've got to have a 10-year plan, which is updated every five years. Is that even for small buildings? Yeah. Mm. But you don't have to fund it. Mm. You you have to make a decision Mm. every every AGM. You have to make a decision. How are we going to fund the the maintenance plan? And that decision could be when we need to get the work done, we'll raise a special levy or we'll raise a loan. You've made a decision then. Everybody's aware of of that. Mm. See, it's not a case of saying we're going to have to spend $10,000 on Windows next year and then putting that money aside you don't need to do that Mm. but you do need to have discussed it yeah and these are the kind of things that people who are have been in committees for a while and have been trundling along not making decisions get alarmed when somebody comes along and says shouldn't we have discussed this Mm. and come up with a decision so my advice is choose the issues get yourself properly informed and then present that to the committee. Sounds very wise. I also suggested taking chocolate muffins to the next committee meeting. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. I mean, because I, really, you don't want to make enemies of all your new neighbours. No. It, it can be miserable living in a place where people don't like you. Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> I, and I think it's better to be to take people along with you. Mm. You know, rather than go up and confront people and say, you guys have really not been doing your jobs properly and I'm here to make sure you do. How about saying to people, ooh, I've I've just read this thing and I've just had this thing that says we should be doing this. Has anybody got any thoughts about that and bring people along with you? Mm. 
Yeah, because people may have very good intentions but just not know the way to go. And if yeah. you can provide them with a, a route map, then, yeah, all the better. And one of the most common things that committees and strata schemes are not doing that they should be doing came up in the webinar that I hosted the mm. other day. Mm. So we'll talk about that after this. Last week, I hosted a webinar called Lawyer in the Hot Seat, and David Bannerman answered questions, some of which had been sent in advance, and some of which actually arrived while we were in the middle of the webinar, mm, some of which didn't get answered at all. He's one of our sponsors, isn't he? He He's is, David, new, yeah. new sponsor. But, um, and David is quite a how can I put this, quite a lively strata lawyer. I mean, he's very active and Mm. he's also very good. He's very highly regarded. Mm. So one of the things that came up was an issue that we've touched on in the past, which was what happens when you are taken to the tribunal by your owner's corporation or you take the owner's corporation to a tribunal and the owner's corporation loses the case. Mm. And this is a little-known part of strata law. The owner's corporation will have expenses, and we're not talking about costs, because costs are sometimes and not always awarded by the tribunal in favour of one party or the other or both. Most usually they would say, pay your own costs. Mm. But we're talking about expenses, and that can be lawyers and expert opinion and all the rest of it. If your strata scheme, if you in a dispute, with your strata scheme and the strata scheme has incurred a lot of expenses and you win and they lose, they have to raise a special levy to pay those expenses. Wow, so they can't pay them out of the... They, the uh, law specifically says they must not funds. pay it out of the admin fund or the sinking fund. They have to raise a special levy that excludes the person who Until won the, the case. Yeah. And that's interesting because I think a lot of people in the past have taken cases to NCAT or VCAT. Things like, you know, maybe the the common property on their apartment leaks or something like that. And then they say afterwards, well, it's great, I've won, but the thing is they're having to pay and I'm one of the lot owners, so I'm actually, it's my money that's helping fund the action against me or defending against me. But now that has changed, and um, so that person who is taking the action or is the subject of action doesn't have to pay for the action against them. I think it changed when the law changed back in 2016. But nobody really nobody knew ever much about noticed it. it. Wow! And the other thing is, it's interesting what you said there because you still have to pay your share of the repairs. Yes, but, but you not don't have the to expenses in them taking action against you or, or defending taking, action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's that's very sensible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the other thing we were going to talk about briefly was costs because... Yeah, what's the difference, costs and expenses? Not a lot. It's the expenses incurred in running the case is mm. the expenses part. But NCAT does not always award costs because they say in, you know, in their legislation it's intended to be a low-cost, self-funded thing. But they will award costs in unusual uh, circumstances. Now, those unusual circumstances could be if somebody has deliberately delayed the process. 
Mm. Um, either by not turning up for meetings or withholding some information and then adding it in later just to slow things down, slow things down, because there is a tactic in legal cases of just a war of attrition, just keep slowing things down, slowing things down. When an owner's corporation or an owner does that in an NCAT case, the, the member can say, or this is ridiculous, I am awarding costs against whoever has been doing this. And, you know, there's other things like if the parties knew or should have known that their case had no legs to stand on, then NCAT will order Mm. or may order, they can order costs to be paid, the other person, the other side's costs to be paid. There's actually a list on the Because that's kind of nuisance litigation, really. It's not serious. Mm. And there is a, a list on the NCAT website of all the categories in which the tribunal may award costs against one party or the other. But this is different. If costs aren't awarded, that's fine. Expenses still exist. And mm. if the owner's corporation has paid for lawyers and paid for experts and then they lose the case, then the person who won the case does not have to pay a share mm. of those costs. Now, that may, is quite interesting tactically because then the owner's corporation or the committee then has to explain to all the owners, well, this special levy is because we took this action or defended this action when we shouldn't have. And by the way, the person who won didn't have to pay. Mm. So that's quite interesting. It might mm. actually curb a few owners' corporations from taking action that you know mm. just for the hell of it, just to try and shut somebody up. Yep, absolutely. And anything else come out of the webinar as well that surprised you? And the other thing that came up was a question that was posted during the the webinar, and it was from somebody saying that their owners' corporation had made a donation for a campaign, it was basically a political campaign, um, related to, I think it was the pet thing, that they wanted the law to be changed so that owners' corporations could make their own decisions and it wouldn't be part of law that you had to allow pets. Right, rather than be bound by the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal, wasn't it, yeah. really, in yeah. the New South Wales? Yeah, and uh, this person was saying, well, is that a legitimate expense? Mm. Because the other campaigns that have been running have been by strata um, buildings against Airbnb, against short-term platforms, saying yeah. that they should be allowed to make bylaws to prevent them coming into their buildings. Which is quite yeah. effective, actually, mm. in New South Wales and nowhere else in Australia. Mm. So it's those kind of campaigns we're talking about, not vote for the teals or... Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And according to David Bannerman, that kind of expense is way beyond the remit of owners corporations and committees they should not be using owners corporation funds for these things mm. you can use the infrastructure of the committee to for instance write to owners and say we want to campaign against or for this mm. would you be prepared to donate Here's a here's a bank account number, or here's a, a so web you set address. Up a specific fund for that. Yeah, or you you, or you ask point them. people towards a fund. Mm. What you cannot do is just use owners' corporation fund. funds mm. to promote these things. And and I think you could argue that you know it was for the greater good. But who's to decide what's right and wrong in these situations? Mm. 
I mean, you might think it's a, a it's a terrific campaign. You might want to have a campaign to ban barbecues on balconies, and and a lot of people would think that was a really bad use of money mm. of the, the owners' corporation's money. Uh, regardless of what benefit you might think it, it would bring to, to owners' corporations. And the other aspect of this, which we didn't get into in the webinar, is if your owners' corporation has paid that money, how do you get it back? Let's say that the campaign was about barbecues, mm. and you are a keen barbecuist, and you really resent your money being used for this campaign. Mm. How do you get it back? And I don't think you can. Right. Because under the law, any repayment of levies to owners has to be unanimously agreed. Mm. Yeah. So therefore, it's even harder. But who are you getting so it back from anyway? I mean, you're getting it back from your own funds. It's, mm. I mean, the only thing I can think possibly, and I think this is a very, very, very long shot, is that you could take the individual committee members who made that decision and say, we want you to pay us back. But they'll have insurance anyway, usually. Oh, yeah. Um, and that insurance would ki- would usually kick in if they made that decision in good faith. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah. there was nothing, no malice. And I think you, you have to assume that in most cases it would be in good faith. Mm. Just misdirected. Now, getting back to the webinar, we've got the audio for the webinar, uh, and uh, I'm cleaning it up as best I can, but... The next couple of podcasts will be the first half hour and the second half hour of the webinar, and that those will be online from next week. Okay, that'll be good. All right, yeah. let's hope so. Yeah, I think it's mm. good. It's quite interesting. Mm, fantastic. Uh, but you won't you won't be on it, Sue. That's probably a good thing, Jimmy. I don't think so. <laughs> so that's a little preview of next week's podcast. Um, Thank you for listening to this week's and thank you, Sue, for coming and joining in. And um, now you can have a little break for a couple of weeks. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Jimmy. And happy travels. Thank you. You're off to the States and to Scotland, I understand. Yes, I am. But I was trying to keep it secret. So oh, well. so I was hoping okay. I was hoping to go away that no one would even notice oh, on okay. the website. No, it's, that's not true. <laughs> uh, the website will keep going. Um the wonders of technology. Uh, it's uh, quite amazing. That Remote you... working. I remember the last time I was away, I was on a train from Boston to Washington, D.C., the Acela train, and they boasted it had Wi-Fi. And I wondered how good it would be. And I was on the train and I discovered the website had crashed here in Australia. And I managed to log on and fix it while traveling at... 100 kilometers an hour on a railway track in America. Pretty amazing. I am I was amazed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, thank you again, Sue. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Flat Chat Wrap podcast. You'll find links to the stories and other references on our website, flatchat.com.au and if you haven't already done so you can subscribe to this podcast completely free on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify, Stitcher or your favourite podcatcher just search for Flat Chat Rap with a W click on subscribe and you'll get this podcast every week without even trying thanks again talk to you again next week